Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Shane Jenkins. It's wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Thanks so much, Rachel. Yeah, it's uh, it's an honor to be here and to practice dissolving my ego with you. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, we were saying, so this episode is going to be about Flannery O'Connor. And we were joking before we started recording the episode that is recording episodes and sharing them with the world kind of a, a practice in stroking your own ego. And luckily, Flannery has written about the problems of egoism and ambition in her prayer journal, which is one of the things we're going to be talking about today. So Shane had the wonderful idea of starting this episode with a prayer and a prayer written by Flannery O'Connor. So maybe Shane, do you want to read it out for us? Sure. So this is from the first entry in her prayer journal that we're going to be reading from. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear God, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. The crescent is very beautiful, and perhaps that is all one like I am should should or could see. But what I am afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon, and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. Please help me to push myself aside. In the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for that, Shane. I think it's such a beautiful way to open this episode because it just goes to the heart of what a deep thinker and beautiful thinker that Flannery O'Connor was. And for this episode, we're taking, you know, a slightly interesting tack. I think we were reminded recently to to examine the life of Flannery O'Connor and her work and her writing because there is a biopic coming out made by Ethan Hawke and Maya Hawke, um, father and daughter duo. And uh, they did, interestingly, they did an interview with Bishop Barron, which I thought was, what, what an interesting way. And I think Ethan Hawke in the, in the interview says that that's the first interview they've done mm-hmm. for the film, which is such a fascinating choice on their part to go to Bishop Barron to have a one and a half hour discussion about Flannery O'Connor. I thought that the discussion was great. I mean, I've got my fingers crossed for the, the film. It hasn't come out yet, but you know, it's certainly made by people who love and at least to a certain depth really understand Flannery and so yeah it just kind of reminded me that she's someone I love to explore and would love to share with the listeners. I know we've done an episode before where I talked about her with my brother Michael we were sort of analyzing thank you Shane (laughs) we were analyzing how her work inspires and informs a lot of filmmaking in particular in that episode we were talking about the film three billboards outside ebbing missouri but for this episode i just want to talk about her and in a strange way that's kind of an odd thing to do because i'm less going to talk about her literature um and more about her as a person if anyone had listened to my recent women's talk episode Uh, where I shared the talk I gave at U2000. I made a joke that I think Flannery O'Connor might be my best friend. (laughs) Um, But uh, it's because when I read her 
her personal writing, I just feel a really deep connection to her. And I find that when I talk to a lot of people about her, they've usually tried to read some of her writing, not really enjoyed it, found it kind of disturbing or off-putting in some way and left well enough alone. And I can I can see why. I think her literature is something to wrestle with. But I think, for me anyway, a lot of her writing really slid into place when I got to know her better. I don't know of how you felt about it, Shane. Absolutely. I mean, at my university, I had heard all kinds of people say like, oh, you want to get into some really in-depth, like complicated writing that's Catholic? go ahead and and do Flannery. And for me, I think the really helpful step to get into the next next phase of that, to understand her work better, was reading Mystery and Manners, which is uh, some of her letters Mm -hmm. first. I only recently have read her prayer journal, but reading Mystery and Manners for me, which I think was something recommended to you and then something facilitated by by Robin, um, our friend, that was something that gave me like a new way of appreciating, oh my gosh, like, when I read the stories, I had no sense of these even being Catholic or how they made sense. <laughs> People kept saying grace was coming from unexpected places, but it just felt really off-putting. Mm-hmm. And then when I finally read her intentions around it, and then I even read other people who had understood the works, elucidate some of those hidden symbols and meaning for, meanings for me, that gave me an entirely new lens to jump back into the work and really see how she was doing something almost no one else was, which was talking about gray stories that were in a sense more real because all people are a mixture of both holy and and or virtue and vice good and bad um Mm. and that our opportunities for grace and growth don't come without their own pains and so um yeah yeah i absolutely felt the same way there and um to your point about feeling that sort of spiritual connection with with um with flannery's writing I feel like that's been true for, I'd say, a lot of young Catholics who are reading or finding people that feel like they're expressing ideas they've always had in their hearts, but they never knew how to get get out onto paper or into into words. And I feel like that also can be an invitation to pray in Thanksgiving for those people and to know that feeling that spiritual affinity isn't just like uh, necessarily a fandom, but it can be a sign that there is maybe like a spiritual connection there too. And so, yeah, I, I, I certainly pray that authors like Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, whomever are, are praying for us, but um, we can certainly pray in Thanksgiving for their their service too. Absolutely. And I think it's, it is interesting to take this particular approach because I think a lot of people might question why it's so important to know the author when you're looking at, at a piece of art. And in fact, um, Flannery herself has spoken about this in a couple of different ways. And she said Things like, actually, a work of art exists without its author from the moment the words are on paper. And the more complete the work, the less important it is who wrote it or why. If you're studying literature, the intentions of the writer have to be found in the work itself and not in his life. Psychology is an interesting subject, but hardly the main consideration for the teacher of English. And she has a lot to say even about the way that English is taught, how they'll do anything except grapple with the text itself. They'll talk about social context. They'll talk about psychology, like she said, you know, all of these things that are actually external to the work rather than the work itself. And so I think it's a valid question to say, then why is it so, why are we taking this approach to look at her primarily and then point to her works? And I think it's because... Because in some ways she's doing something that's deeply difficult 
And it takes a level of trust, especially from a Catholic audience, to follow her along the path that she's leading us. And I do think her work stands by itself. I think people have been moved by her writing for for decades. I think you can find the intention and you can find the grace. But at the same time, I think our modern culture in particular is so disadvantaged in being prepared to encounter what she's offering. And it's it's interesting because, like you said, she gets she gets thrown at a lot of Catholics uh, for for a good reason, and I think in some ways Catholics can be uniquely <laughs> unprepared for <laughs> for what she's trying to say. I, th- I think a lot of us associate our faith with a kind of benignness or wholesomeness or something kind of inoffensive, and what she's doing is something kind of unpalatable in many ways, and so we can feel like that isn't what we expect from our faith, and so probably isn't isn't correct or isn't right um and you know i think it's always funny she we're going to talk about her humor in a bit but she i'm sure she loves the way that she's sort of a walking anomaly of this very quaint uh southern writer Mm -hmm. and you know i think we're taking this episode a little bit like you've heard of flannery o'connor we're not going to delve too deeply into her life story but suffice it to say you know she was writing in the 20th century and uh was this you know <laughs> what should have been like a sweet little young lady from uh this the american south and she went to uh writing school up in iowa um but when she was diagnosed with lupus came back to write in milledgeville uh with her uh, with her mother on a on a farm where she raised peacocks and the lupus cut her her life tragically short but what we do have is the writings of a woman with such intense clarity and discipline about what she was trying to do. Um, I love that Bishop Barron has in his, in the Word on Fire collection of her writing, he has the introduction, but he regales a story of having set some of her writing for one of his classes. And this woman comes up afterwards saying, how could you have made us read that awful story? (laughs) And he he says, it was not an unusual reaction to one's first reading of Flannery O'Connor. Perhaps it is the incongruity between author and text that produces this effect. A genteel lady from the South and stories marked by mayhem, deceit, shocking violence, perverse motivations and sudden death. Or maybe it's the disconnect between O'Connor's much touted Catholicism and her tales, in which Catholics rarely appear and which seem fraught with spiritual aridity, even despair. When asked to identify the key quality of her work, O'Connor herself reached for the category of grotesque. But why, a first reader of her narratives might wonder, is a nice Catholic lady dealing in the grotesque? And like I said, I think, yeah, we find that difficult to deal with. As I said just before, that like there's a tendency to put our faith in a box of like nice things and things that make us feel uplifted and joyful even. And at the very same time, when we go out into the world, we look at a lot of storytelling and advertising and all of these things that are pushing fallenness and like the vices of the world and presenting them to us as if they were good things. And instead, Flannery's trying to do something which is actually different from both of those, which is to take us into that fallenness and then to use that fallenness to point towards God. And I think that takes a level of trust from from readers these days, because I think we're so used to having our defenses up to say, oh, here's all this horrible stuff. You're trying to tell me that it's a good thing and I don't think it's a good thing. And, you know, of course, Flannery is saying, no, 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 this is not a good thing. Right. 
Yeah, it's um, if I could bring in just a, an anecdote from yesterday that that reminded me of our discussion. I was, I was, I think I was just struck with like the actual complexity of, of one's life in terms of like how close we are to God, and that I was, I was in kind of like a spiritual confession um, with someone and was t- sort of talking about my my growth in some virtues where I was like, I'm really proud of like having gotten better in this one way. I feel like that's something that I can actually like kind of hang my hat on. Um, and then realizing just moments before I had confessed like other sins that I was like very much struggling with chronically. And so it was like, oh yeah, how can we both at the same time be people who you know, aren't as simple as like, this person represents the good guy, and this person represents the Mm. bad, and that someone can struggle. Well, put it this way, every single human on earth is in contact with God. There's no sense in which there's anyone abandoned that's living on earth. Mm. And so what would that actually look like in a story, you know, for every single one of them to be in contact, not just the ones who were active and pious and prayerful, but the ones Mm. who might have had a yearning implicitly through their love of, of nature or beauty um, or through a sermon they once heard, but were living a life of, of, of vice and confliction, but they were aware of it. There's all these kinds of characters that Flattery is able to imagine that I think many of us really don't imagine or don't think about that are more true to life in some ways. Um, and I think you've mentioned before that she often uh, distills all of that in the vision of people who are misfits, like you said, perhaps a little bit like herself being a misfit. Yeah, and I think it just yeah that I think that really springboards into my next point, which was that like we can be. You were just saying about like hanging your hat on your virtues, and I think it's so easy for us to think of ourselves as like doing okay, and not to not to denigrate anyone's efforts. I mean, I think we're all really trying mm-hmm. to be better than okay, but it's so easy to be complacent and even smug about our level of piety, our level of faithfulness. And I think what Flannery does a lot in her her work is to show how much violence is needed to shake us out of that Mm. complacency. And so, you know, we think of the, you know, I think her most famous story is arguably a good man is hard to find. And, uh, you know, at a crucial moment, the grandmother is, is shot to death. But, it's actually a story of hope because she's finally in in encountering that level of violence she is finally shaken out of her own self-importance and fussiness and self-interest and all of those things and that we too should be aware that that might be the level of violence needed for us to really encounter grace and we should be so lucky to only have to encounter it in a story <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know? what an opportunity to to learn yeah <laughs> yeah and so you know i think it's it's so easy to take her stories and feel like she's wallowing in these like horrible things and she kind of points out that there is an author called Wyndham Lewis who had a collection of stories called Rotting Hill and he said about it if I write about a hill that is rotting it is because I despise rot and Flannery goes on to say the general accusation passed against writers now is that they write about rot because they love it some do and and their works may betray them but it is impossible to believe that some write about rot because they see it and recognize it for what it is Mm. and that's what she's trying to get across at us which is that so much of our lives we just take for granted the fallenness of man and we just think of it as totally normal and the the normal state of affairs and not something that needs to be reckoned with or challenged or changed 
and she's sort of attempting in her writing to shake us by the shoulders. And I think knowing her and seeing with her eyes helps us to see what she's doing. So for the the episode, I, I had the idea of taking three sort of topics that she delves into particularly the main sources of text that we're drawing on are are three works of hers that are more personal writings there's what shane already mentioned with her prayer journal which maybe change you want to say when that was written yeah so the prayer journal is really like a found document in that it's it's kind of scattered entries throughout uh i think over the course of like three or so years from around ostensibly 1945 to 47. So that for her was um, during her her education in Iowa and I think briefly afterwards, but it ends abruptly, um, I think about three years before she's diagnosed with lupus. And so it's kind of in this like coming of age range where she's going, leaving home, going to a, a foreign place in the country and having to stand behind what she believes in while also growing and learning about her own craft. Um, and all the while is, is praying for the humility and yet the grace to do great things, but not but not let those great things be for her own sake, but for um, for the sake of what she's going to convey. Yeah, it's a beautiful and it's very short if anyone wants to read it. I think my copy is 70 pages, but half of those are the facsimile of the mm-hmm. the text. So it's just like it's 40 pages. So it's very short. And um, the other one, I think, and for me, is so important and has been really transformative to me is her collection of essays which are sort of speeches that she wrote and various um talks that she gave and that's called mystery and manners and occasional prose (laughs) (laughs) um and that's wonderful and that's written sort of obviously when she's come into being a notable writer at the time and people are asking for her to to give talks about writing because she's sort of succeeding in this literary field but at that stage, she is at home um, and being a full-time writer while also having lupus. And then alongside that, which I know, Shane, you're less familiar with, but one of my... I haven't I haven't read it all, I have to say. It's 600 pages, but I, one day I will sit down and read the whole thing cover to cover. I did start, but then I had to give, give my copy away. Um, I've got it back now, so it will happen. But it's her collection of letters, which is called The Habit of Being, and honestly is potentially my favorite thing that she's written which is terrible I know we we keep saying that like herself shouldn't eclipse her art but I just adore her letters it makes me sick to think of how funny and wise she is in those letters and how frivolous my own correspondence is (laughs) (laughs) well we need a collection of your text that's where all your best writing is so (laughs) (laughs) so from that I wanted to go into three sort of aspects of her and what she's written about so I've flippantly called these three sections the seriousness of her craft, the seriousness of her belief, and the seriousness of her humor, uh, <laughs> uh, which hopefully she will appreciate my attempt at a joke there. Um, <laughs> but I think all three of those are really important in terms of getting to know her. So I don't know, maybe we'll see, we'll, we'll start in the order that I said and, and start with the seriousness of her craft, sounds which great. I think is wonderful for me, who as someone who loves writing and loves literature, it's so clear that... Flannery really took the idea of a vocation as a writer seriously and that writing as a craft is something that you can actively work on and has objective standards and should be 
encouraged and even discouraged in some people and that like talent is a gift given by God and that it is a responsibility to use and use well and use within its limitations and I just think it's so interesting to actually see someone who is more interested in writing than being a writer and you know that prayer of egoism we said at the start like she has huge ambition which I think she she then brings to God like we said in that prayer that she wants to be great but she doesn't want it to eclipse her love for God and yet at the same time it's there is a sense in which yeah that there is a humbleness in wanting to write rather than to be a famous writer Absolutely. and and actually caring about her craft and so she demands a lot of writers, of herself, and also of her readers, which I think is very important in what we're saying about how to approach her, her writing as readers. Yeah, yeah. I think part of what I notice in the seriousness you mentioned is that there's sort of two things going on between what I'm familiar with, which is the journal and her essays. In the journal, she does describe this intense desire to to pub to be published, really. And it's kind of, she's aware of, of the balance that's happening between wanting to be published to be significant and wanting to be published to actually like do something good in this, in this world, to be a servant of God and like to channel that which is true into written work. And I think that that should be the desire of any Catholic artist really is to be a channel, right? Um, channel of the truth, the good and the beautiful. But then what struck me when I was reading her essays is that you know, it, when she's speaking with God in the journal, she's able to be more sort of self-effacing, more doubtful and and trying to sort of like t- t- tame her own ego. But in the essays, she really is fighting for what she she believes is good art, good writing and, and good literature. In many ways, it, it, it actually left me feeling almost discouraged at the beginning because she was talking about people who, you know, if they don't have it, they don't have it. They should be discouraged or that we shouldn't be writing just just to publish something or just to make money or just to be significant. Um, and yet, I don't think that they're incongruous. Like, she's trying to stand for that same vision that's described in the journal in my mind, where she's trying to stand for writers who are serious and want to do good things and not just um, be praised. But there is a challenge there still for me where in, in knowing that she would support someone who, who was trying to grow and be serious in their writing, that that even if you are an amateur who can't write as talent, in such a talented way as she can, that there still is value um, in trying to grow in that way. At, at least what I've heard from friends is that in some of those letters, if, if say you were a friend of hers and you'd reached out talking about it, she'd certainly be supportive of you in growing and writing and trying to do so in a prayerful way. But I think she, like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like in her, her essays, she's more trying to fight against a trend towards, I don't know, how, what do you want to call it? Flippant? bad, trashy writing, trite stuff. Yeah, at one point she calls it slick juvenile writing. Slick juvenile <laughs> writing. You can see that she's yeah. trying to fight the good fight against a, a very real wave, right? A hundred percent. And I think you were right there as well to point out, yeah, in some ways the, the journal, the essays and the letters form a sort of tri- tripartite of like how she approaches things because you're right, in the letters she takes so much care and attention with encouraging and practically giving feedback and you know constructive work with people who are writing so that like you get this whole view where you know you get her own struggle and her own self-doubt and then her sort of proclaimed principles and then the sort of practical wisdom and help that she offers through the letters uh but you're right that like it, it is a kind of interesting 
element which I think is only maybe increased in in modern day of this this idea that not everyone needs to be a writer <laughs> uh, she, wow she 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 very famously said that like someone asked her if universities stifle writers and she replied saying it doesn't stifle enough of them <laughs> <laughs> see that that leaves me feeling so discouraged but it's also so funny <laughs> But I think, well, I think it's interesting because I think she also makes this very clear distinction between different types of writing. And so, again, to focus our minds on what our actual talent is. And if you, you, you're talking about writing as a sort of general topic, but she's very clear about like, there are some people, you know, she in, in this particular context, she's kind of complaining about it because she's saying that people want to write stories and then whatever they write, they're not stories, they're memoirs or they're an episode or they're reflections or they're, you know what I mean? That there are these things that um, I think a lot of us just th- take anything that's put down on a page and call it a short story. And she's trying to make the argument that like a story is this concrete thing that has characters, it has actions, and it's not about the author's feelings. It is about the real tangible feelings of the people within the stories that are being told. And that like she she has a real strict view on what it is. And so it's also a question if you are feeling that way yourself, maybe it's to think very seriously about, well, if I do feel like I'm called to writing and I do feel like God has given me a talent, um, am I clear about what kind of writing that he's calling me to? Or am I letting my own preferences or ego get in the way of what might actually be the area of writing that I'm being called to? Because in that way, I think she's also making a point about how everyone wants to write a novel, but that actually there's more ways than one to express yourself through writing. Yeah. Wow. Just, just, just thinking about it in terms of the discernment of gifts, like you said, I think that's something that's true in all aspects of life, but to then incorporate that into what one wants to create, why shouldn't it extend to writing? You know, we, 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 mm-hmm. we just say it should be everywhere else. And so perhaps Flannery is a really good example of someone who, laboriously slaves over making sure that's the case, you know? Yeah. It's hard. How do you convey that to a secular audience of writers? Um, it's somewhat easier to convey to a Catholic authors, but, um, but yeah, just that you need to be a channel and not just to be, <laughs> I guess the, the person at the head of the head of the ship. Um, just to reference that interview you talked about with Robert Barrett and, and the Hawks, um, they seem to grasp that at least a little bit when they described how, who was it that said uh, they, they, there was a quote in there about someone saying um, it is merely their job to report inspiration when it comes, not necessarily to generate it. And so there, mm. there's uh, in some sense a humility of acknowledging that an author is someone who's trained their eye and observational skills and writing talents um, to be able to record true things, even if they're in a fictional format. Yeah. But they aren't coming solely from them. There's some sort of external yeah. source to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that I think her ability to cut through a lot of the egoism like that we were referencing in the, in the prayer, that like she can do this because she knows it herself, but that she is so practically honest with herself as to be able to cut through a lot of that and see it in other people. Um, here's one of my favorite quotes of hers in terms of writing and fiction. She says, fiction is hard if not impossible to write, because fiction is so very much an incarnation art. 
One of the most common and saddest spectacles is that of a person of really fine sensibility and acute psychological perception trying to write fiction by using these qualities alone. This type of writer will put down one intensely emotional or keenly perceptive sentence after another, and the result will be complete dullness. The fact is, the materials of the fiction writer are the humblest. Fiction is about everything human and we are made out of dust. And if you scorn getting yourself dusty, then you shouldn't try to write fiction. It's not a grand enough job for you. And (laughs) I... (laughs) Amazing. That's an amazing quote, honestly. Yeah, I think so. And I think it it does away with the idea of writing fiction for self-affirming reasons, that it should be in some ways a humble job and she does I love the way she talks about how fiction is rendered through the senses and that it's the fiction's writer writer's job to to see that um there was one quote that I, I I didn't put in our document because it's quite long and I was trying to force myself not to to quote it but I just I love it so much <laughs> but she's talking about Madame Bovary and Ooh. taking a line from it and she says all the sentences in Madame Bovary could be examined with wonder but there is one in particular that always stops me in admiration Flaubert has just shown us Emma at the piano with Charles watching her he says she struck the notes with aplomb and ran from top to bottom of the keyboard without break Thus shaken up, the old instrument, whose strings buzzed, could be heard at the other end of the village when the window was open, and often the bailiff's clerk, passing along the high road, bareheaded in his list slippers, stopped to listen, his sheets of paper in his hands. And then she says, The more you look at a sentence like that, the more you can learn from it. At one end of it, we are with Emma and this very solid instrument whose strings buzzed. And at the other end of it, we are across the village with this very concrete clerk in his list slippers. With regard to what happens to Emma in the rest of the novel, we may think it makes no difference that the instrument had buzzing strings or that the clerk wears list slippers and has a, a piece of paper in his hand. But Flaubert had to create a believable village to put Emma in. It is always necessary to remember that the fiction writer is much less immediately concerned with grand ideas and bristling emotions than he is with putting list slippers on clerks. Wow. <laughs> I'm glad you read and I, that. <laughs> I just adore that because... And she goes on to say that also fiction is not just about piling up useless information or details, mm. but... That 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 the job of the fiction writer is to put list slippers on clerks, like yeah. that. That it begins in these really concrete things that are about b- building up a believable world in which believable characters have action, and that action causes things. That they're all the they're, they're not actually about the psychological musings, but that it's about action. Mm. It's about mm. the senses. It's about the incarnation, as she says. That's fascinating. Like the actual people that the the ideas exist within and their lives and their Mm -hmm. behavior rather than just the ideas um, a priori, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's funny you mentioned that because I'm just reminded of so many other other examples of this where one needs to have a really discerning um, ability to choose what what details are and aren't necessary because you can speak without 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 telling by the details you choose there i think probably yeah most all of our, our most famous fiction writers would, would be give would be <laughs> awarded that trait right people mm. think of like jd salinger for whom in his short stories 
the only description of a person's character might be the way they're holding a telephone. And by that, mm-hmm. you know so much about their character already. And so similarly, I think with this, you're getting to the same point. And then I also know that for many, I, I, I'd include myself in this, but also other Catholic writers I've read from, uh, one of the biggest challenges is quite literally getting yourself out of the way when writing by saying like, you know, if you have all these ideas that you want people to mm-hmm. listen to, if you put the ideas on the page, just no one will care. It will be awful. But if you find yourself writing a story that is that is real, real as in like the characters feel real and it feels true to, to, true to life in some ways, then you find people encountering those ideas through, like you said, the incarnated form of them in these people rather than just you writing an essay, <laughs> I suppose. Might as well just do that, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, this takes, it takes work. Like she talks about that, that like for writers, it's so much harder and so much more effort to try and render the world before you than to just sort of spill out your own thoughts on something. Right. And, and you know, I think she, she, also, she is really good about that, that like she writes very humorously but that she is saying something serious when she talks about and especially catholic readers and catholic writers that like the fear or the trepidation they have of representing the world that they feel like they ought to she says tidy it up um which is a really interesting way to like think about that that are you know that that maybe that knee-jerk reaction to say that you shouldn't represent the darkness is this this need to tidy up the creation that God has given us. And so like <laughs> that we shouldn't be afraid of actually delving into something that is 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 less tidied up, that is more yeah. messy. And she says it is when the individual's faith is weak, not when it is strong, that he will be af- afraid of an honest fictional representation of life. And when, and when there is a tendency to compartmentalize the spiritual and make it resident in a certain type of life only, the supernatural is apt gradually to be lost. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about how for one, I really admire how Flannery has been able to do that with so many areas of the world that I myself have shrunk from. Um, mm-hmm. you, ha- you have to be better than I am, a better Flannery fan than I am in telling me the name of the short story. But in the one where the girl goes to the, the little carnival to see um, the... The oh, Temple go, of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, the Temple of the Holy Spirit, to see the, the sort of like, I, I don't know what, 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 to, what to call it, but... Yeah, like the, the, the creature on, on uh, in the tent who is neither man nor woman. There's an element of that where, yeah, that's an example of a kind of thing that is probably, you know, seems like it's not fitting for polite table conversation, you know. And yet, <laughs> and yet, at least the way that I've come to understand that story with the aid of other people's analyses has been just so beautiful and, and trying to reveal that inherent godliness in every single human being um Mm. and that that's there you are like the human body that is the temple of the holy spirit um and it's seen in all in every person no matter what their shape but then to talk about where we've seen this go wrong is that you can understand the sentiment of many catholics to want to avoid scandalizing those who are perhaps more vulnerable more fragile and yet when that goes to an extreme we've seen that (laughs) just return far, far more difficulties than we've been saved in the real world. For example, I think there's been probably an overcorrection in um, avoiding cop topics around Catholic ethics and sexuality and how relationships work in our world, such that when children are just told, well, 
don't really think about that. It's sort of impertinent or it's, it's not very good for, for you to worry about that yet. Um, then they end up never delving into it in a way that is good and healthy and mm. constructive. And you find yourself 30 years later with a generation of people that are struggling from that. And so I, yeah. I think you're right that we need to be courageous enough to delve into these areas that are dark and confusing, but unavoidable in life. Um, and Flannery gives us a, a, a good pattern for how to do so. Yeah, and I think she has a lot to say about the role of the artist versus the role of the church, that mm -hmm. she says a lot about how it is the artist's purview to create art and the church's purview to protect souls and that Christian artists should have moral bases for what they're doing, but that, yeah, that, and she even says that, like, they should thank the church for censoring them if they need to be censored, <laughs> but that, but, but that their concern should be the piece of art at hand, you know? Right. Uh, and I think that's really interesting that, like, to not necessarily in the same way take it upon yourself to save souls by what you're doing because yeah. your job she's very clear about this the job the job of a catholic novelist is is to be a novelist yeah uh, not not to be anything else and that also as you kind of mentioned that you know it will be she she talks about how you know it can be almost the work of a lifetime to become a well-informed fiction reader and that we do need to to have expectations and even like recognitions of our own limitations that you know sometimes when we don't understand something we can tend to say well then it must be bad if it, if it doesn't fit within my framework but even you know if you just read fiction sort of as a hobby maybe that's enough for you and that's fine but to recognize that maybe you don't have the sort of literary standing to actually be able to assess the value of, of what you're reading, um, especially if you're doing it negatively with a view to kind of prohibit people. And she says, uh, this is amazing. Well, for I, there's one quote that I want to say first, which I just love, which is more about teaching literature. And I've been sharing it with all my friends. It's almost kind of Lewisian where she's talking mm. about teaching them the history of, of great writers instead of the books that are to students' tastes. And uh, she says, uh, if the student finds that this is not to his taste, well, that is regrettable, most regrettable. His tastes should not be consulted. They are being formed, uh, which I, I love. But she says as well, there are those who maintain that you can't demand anything of the reader. They say the reader knows nothing about art and that if you're going to reach him, you have to be humble enough to descend to his level. This supposes that the aim of art is to teach, which it is not, or that to create anything which is simply a good in itself is a waste of time. Art never responds to the wish to make it democratic. It is not for everyone. It is only for those who are willing to undergo the effort needed to understand it. We hear a great deal about humility being required to lower oneself but it requires an equal humility and a real love of the truth to raise oneself and by hard labour to acquire higher standards. And this is certainly the obligation of the Catholic. It is its obligation in all dis disciplines of life, but most particularly in those on which he presumes to pass judgment. Ignorance is excusable when it is borne like a cross, but not when it is wielded like an axe, and with a moral indignation, then it becomes something else indeed." We reflect the church in everything we do, and those who can see clearly that our judgment is false in matters of art cannot be blamed for suspecting our judgment in matters of religion. Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah. That, 
I, I feel like I'm oftentimes very struck by uh, a holy envy of like, I just wish that I could see things so clearly sometimes. I know. But, but I wanted to kind of add to that. What a, what an amazing view of both education around literature and the whole scandal thing to, 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 to sort of flip things on its head and say, oh, wow, imagine a world in which both the creators and the censors are actually a harmonious whole. And it's like mm-hmm. both playing a role rather than it being this sort of eternal battle of the dark side and the light side of the force, you know, or yeah. <laughs> it kind of has some similarities there. But then the, the other side of it being, I think she mentions in, in another one of her essays that a lot of times literature is introduced to students through the lens of analysis. And even though, like you said, analysis can be part of it. And sometimes for, even for me, a tiny bit of analysis is necessary before you can enjoy the work. Really. The only reason you want to analyze something is because you enjoyed it. It's because it was, mm. it was fun to read. The reason that we meet together to talk about these things isn't because we said, let's go tackle a hard topic and come back together. It's because we both love Flannery. Um, mm. love her works. And so I think she grasps that well, too. And that relates to the quote you were just sharing about what is the, the, the reason for art and why is it brought into education and how do we introduce people to it? Um, I think that she's very apt to point out that, like, first and foremost, I hope you enjoy it. Um, and then we mm. can talk about its meaning. <laughs> I think she says at one point, the only answer of how, how should this story be read is to say, go read it. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it was interesting what you said about her sort of clarity of vision, especially her sort of moral vision, because I think that brings us maybe back to her journal where you see a lot more of her her doubt and her mm, confusion. Yeah. And so, you know, to maybe go to our second topic, the seriousness of belief. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think she's just an amazing writer when it comes to faith because she really took her faith seriously. And I think it's interesting for me as someone who is not a convert or a revert. I am, I've been a practicing Catholic all my life. Um, and I think she even says in one of her letters that like, oh, all the best Catholic writers, that the way that people get out of how, how that happens is they say, well, they're all converts anyway. Um, <laughs> and it can feel a lot like all the notable Catholic people are people who've converted to the faith. (laughs) And it's not the case, but I think for me, anyway, Flannery is a big sort of reassuring rock Mm. where I can say this is someone whose faith has has stuck with them in their life. And that doesn't mean to say that that wrestling with doubt and 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 wrestling with faith aren't aren't part of that i think that's part of the human experience but that yeah that it can be a a life that is embodied by a sense that this faith has been continuous throughout it um but she's so funny when she she writes about faith she's just so open and honest but in her particular way and i think you know talking about how she views this idea of like her life as being being faithful throughout. She says, I wish only that I were one of the strong. If I were, that less would have been given me and I would have felt a great want, felt it and struggled to consummate it, come to grips with Christ as it were. But I am one of the weak. I'm so weak that God has given me everything, all the tools, instructions for their use, even a good brain to use them with a creative brain to make them immediate for others. God is feeding me and what I am praying for is an appetite. Yeah, it's, yeah, for, for me, when I hear that and when I think about Flannery's encounter with, with her own faith, um, I suppose I suppose I probably fall into a similar camp. I, I maybe am slightly more of a revert than, than a lifelong Catholic, but I think I'm struck by the fact that perhaps 
uh, reverts and converts and Flannery are able to understand the significance of their faith because they're able to see or at least appreciate the world without it, appreciate the mm-hmm. opposite, appreciate the distance that has been traveled to where they are at presently. Um, mm-hmm. And I think if you don't understand the distance and it is sort of given, she, she, does, she, she does have a quote about how having your faith sort of given to you as a child is also a gift because it introduces you to a desire that you may not have otherwise encountered. Um, mm. At the same time, the, the risk of it is that you take that desire for granted, like you said. And so, and so your quote there about her asking for and praying for an intense desire for God, for that desire to grow and for it to be refined in the right ways is present throughout that prayer journal. Um, it's mm. a theme that's going to keep coming up and up for her is um, yeah. praying for the grace to, to desire better. It's kind of funny. She's like, it's an irony that like that in one way, you know, put it this way, say you want to go to confession. That's already a good thing because you've wronged God. You want to make, make, make mm-hmm. right by it. But to then have to ask God for the courage to go to confession <laughs> kind of is like, <laughs> well, you sort of, it's not, it's not skipping a step because that's what God wants us to do. But it's like, wow, I can't even go myself. Like I need God's help to apologize to God. <laughs> and so um, there's a lot of that going on in her life where she wants to be better in her mm-hmm. faith but she acknowledges just her absolute need for, for God's grace um, because I think she's very aware of the ways that she fails. Um, and even if they aren't these giant ways, like I've never killed anybody, um, mm. she's intimately aware with how the small ways can be just as nefarious, if not more so. I, I think you might even have a quote on the timidity of, of virtues and vice um, somewhere in there, Rachel, but we can come 100%. to that shortly. Uh, well, I can I can read it out now. It was uh, I, it was the quote I put in my talk on womanhood because I think is the quote that has been extremely central to me in my life. Where she says it's in her letters. She says, "I am not a mystic and I do not lead a holy life. Not that I can claim any interesting or pleasurable sins. My sense of the devil is strong, but I know all about the garden variety: pride, gluttony, envy, and sloth." And what is more to the point, my virtues are as timid as my vices. <laughs> I think sin occasionally bring, brings one closer to God, but not habitual sin and not this petty kind that blocks out every small good. A working knowledge of the devil can be very well had from resisting him. <laughs> 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 but yeah, you're right. I, I find that line so interesting because I think she says so much with saying that like our our virtues are timid and i think it relates to one of her stories which is called revelation where at the critical moment this very smug woman has a vision of all of these people going to heaven and it's includes lunatics god forbid but it says specifically that she could see their vices being burned away but also their virtues that like Mm that these things that we take for ourselves, even when they're vigorous, and she talks about the virtue needing to be the only vigorous thing in our life, but that our timidness, for most of them are pretty timid, and even our vigorous virtues are only from God, and so they don't belong to us in the mm. first place anyway. And so we have, we don't have, we shouldn't feel that sense of complacency or smugness or any of those things because we haven't earned our virtues. Um, but that they need to be guarded and protected and nurtured all the same. Yeah, I think she's wow. so profound about how, yeah, how little grace we allow into our lives. And that can be in the form of our virtues that we kind of 
leave at a resting level but also yeah these kind of actions of grace that in you know she she's very famous for saying that about her fiction that it, it's all about the offer of grace usually refused and i think that's interesting about the way that she uses these really violent forms for trying to get grace across in fact i'm thinking if there's a lyric from an imogen heap song let's see if i can remember it where she says all i want is one little backstreet miracle i'll be an out and out born again from none more cynical but we all feel that like if only we saw this one miracle we would we would change our lives and the reality is is that even in these really extreme situations we still can't quite grasp it and we revert back to our old ways or we we find new ways to be (laughs) (laughs) sinful (laughs) but yeah so i think that's really interesting that like we forget how easy it is to refuse grace Mm, yeah i think i think we mentioned earlier that's oftentimes one of the most off-putting parts of the stories is you want there to be that resolution you want there to be this growth um but we can still learn from stories of people who maybe come halfway or maybe get part of this, the answer right and not the rest of it. Talking about how her faith shows up in the prayer journal, though, outside of her actual prayers to God, which oftentimes do follow that same pattern we've just mentioned of, of acknowledging like the ego and, and wanting to use the gifts for good, but at the same time acknowledging that the gifts don't belong to her in the first place. I think the other thing that's very interesting is how She's in an environment at this Iowa writing school where probably her, her whole identity is in some ways under scrutiny. One, she's, she's a Southerner. Two, she's a woman. And though she wouldn't necessarily hang her hat on like being completely prejudiced for being a woman, I think there's an element where those in combination with also being a, a true and firm Catholic, not someone who doesn't have doubts and, and questions, but someone who, who would consider themselves a full-on Catholic means that she, uh, that she sort of attracts, attracts I guess, confrontation there. And so there are a few places where she journals about encountering the sort of smug, the smugness of, of the new psychology movement that's trying to explain all spiritual experiences away as like just frivolities of the human mind. And it can be as simple as that if you just have the right science to understand it. And she mentions how in the heat of those moments when she's all alone in those in those discussions, she's very tempted to just want to assent because she's she's very humble in saying that a mind as sort of simple as hers in this matter and not one that's quite the mind of a theologian struggles to find explanations or arguments that would contradict what they say. And I feel like this is often true with any argument where if you feel like someone's saying something that you don't know how to refute, but it doesn't really sit right with you in the moment, you don't have to necessarily admit that it's right, but it can feel very debilitating to be there and not know what to say. And yet she has this journal to come back to at, at various points and, and bring those moments to God and say, God, like this person has told me that my faith is this shallow, shadowy version of what I really want it to be, that it is just a matter of wish fulfillment or me trying to make God into my own image and therefore imagining this this, this being that fits what my subconscious needs are. But what's amazing about her faith for me is that she can hold that intention with still knowing what once was true, what she has experienced in the past. So even though she's in a moment of spiritual dryness, she knows that at one point in the past, she was thankful Mm -hmm. that at one point in the past, God was very evident to her. And it's not that this, this one moment of confusion has necessarily completely eroded that for her. And so what's also great is that Whenever I've had moments like that in my life, 
people say like, oh, well, aren't all of you Catholics just rule followers who don't think anyways? I'm like, if that were true, I wouldn't want to be Catholic, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> all of these sort of like straw man examples. No, please. No. Like if they are true, take them away and let's end them. And I think that she has a similar mentality, at least as far as I see it, where she prays that her faith not be just stemming from her own insecurities or stemming from a need for someone to placate her emotions. She wants her faith to be real and so real that it's more than she can understand and more than she can imagine that God is bigger than anything that you can grasp. And um, I don't know if we'll get into this as well, but that does come through with the way in some sense that her prayers are answered where at least in, in the opinion of the editor of the journal, she prays to have the grace to accept suffering and turn that into fruit for other people and turn that into published works that do good. Um, and by the end of the, the journal, she hasn't really seen much of that, but we know that further on in her life, she does suffer quite greatly. Um, and yet maybe in some ways, because of that suffering, she is the, the iconic person that we know her to be today. Um, so that was a bit of a rambling, sorry, but I definitely no, see that wonderful. as an, an element of her spirituality in this book as well. I think it's really interesting what you say about, yeah, feeling inadequate, not up to the task of defending your faith. And, you know, she's deeply learned and deeply um, understanding it. Yet, you know, her mo in some ways, her most famous theological statement is she regales the story of being at a dinner party um, and where, you know, there's this woman who she calls a big intellect and with <laughs> capitalized, um, uh, you know, Flannery always throwing a little bit of um, shade someone's direction. But she, you know, this this woman, I think her name is Mary McCarthy, saying, oh, well, the Eucharist I still respect as a wonderful symbol. And Flannery replies in sort of, she says herself, a kind of shaking voice. Well, if it's a symbol to hell with it. <laughs> and, you know, she says in some ways that's very inadequate, but even on reflection, I think that's all I ever have to say. And it has been an incredibly profound defense of Catholic teaching for all that is just a nervous reply at a dinner party. Mm. And I think it's important to remember that she is genuinely nervous and feels out of place. I think the line before that, she says that she's been brought along to this dinner party like a dog who had been taught to say a couple of words, <laughs> but in its sense of own inadequacy has forgotten them. <laughs> 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 you know, that, that's, um, that's in some ways relevant to her childhood story where the Pathé film crew comes to her home. And she's she's been able to have that chicken walk backwards before, but she can't do it on the day they're there to film. And so, yeah. yeah. They end up, don't they end up playing the film? They, they record the chicken walking and then just Play put it, it backwards for the, the, yeah. the, <laughs> the new story. Even though she doubtlessly was able to do it, it just didn't happen yeah. that day. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, I, I, I was the same. I immediately thought of, yeah, teaching an animal to do something and then having it shrink from the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but And she's so good with those those kind of witty encapsulations as well. We're going to get onto her humor in, in a minute, but I love what in her prayer journal where she says, what I am asking for is really very oh, ridiculous. Yes. Oh Lord, I am saying, at present I am a cheese. Make me a mystic. Immediately. Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> but then she says, but then God can do that. Make mystics out of cheeses. <laughs> um, but I, I think she's so witty and so 
sharp and clear. And I think that's why it's so good to delve into her vision because she does have this clarity that we're talking about. I love where she says, and it's a kind of an odd essay at the end of the the book of Mystery and Manners, where it talks about how she was sort of roped into producing this book about this very pious little girl who mm-hmm. died quite young. And, you know, when she first receives this, the the letter about it, she's like, oh, gosh, another one of these. And she's saying that she doesn't really have a lot of interest or time for stories about little pious children. Um, and she <laughs> she says that uh, the, the best way to avoid doing a task is to prescribe it to the person who's prescribed it to you. So she sends it back to the nuns who have requested it and says, you should write it. But lo and behold, they do actually write it but anyway she's talking about what it means to look good in the face because this this little girl is fascinating and pious and wonderful and and has passed away young but she also had a a large tumor on her face and uh she said that in learning about this young girl Marianne she says this opened up for me and also a new perspective on the grotesque most of us have learned to be dispassionate about evil to look it in the face and find as often as not our own grinning reflections with which we do not argue but good is another matter few have stared at that long enough to accept the fact that its face too is grotesque that in us the good is something under construction The modes of evil usually receive worthy expression. The modes of good have to be satisfied with a cliché or a smoothing down that will soften their real look. And she's just so perceptive about that, that, yeah, that we, we don't even want to look at good in the face long enough, that we have to make it more agreeable or less confronting. Yeah, I feel like that's something that we've seen in other works, particularly like C.S. Lewis with with sort of the gaze of Aslan or others where Mm. you recognizing yourself in contrast to that makes you uncomfortable and you'd rather not think about it and you'd rather shrink away. Mm -hmm. But that's honestly, for me, one of the greatest gifts of Flannery's work is her ability to not shrink away from, you know, in theory, not shrink away from pretty much any manifestation of human. Um, and we've seen that in her letters, as far as I've understood it, too, just the way that she connects to people who would be considered outcasts or, or outliers at the time. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a really lovely one at the end there. I forgot about that essay. Um, but then also, just that she's she's honest about the mark being, I think she, she actually does use the word grotesque, which is one that she, I think, <laughs> finds finds. Uh, she has, she has conflict with, and not everyone wants to label her, her work as grotesque, and she's kind of tired of that. But she does that, and yet that's fascinating that if, if the stereotype has been that Southern writers write about the grotesque um, and kind of dwelling in and focusing on these really awful depictions of, of humanity to, in some vague sense, understand ourselves better, her use of the grotesque is rather more confrontational, saying this little girl who was so pious... Was she called grotesque too? You know, did did, mm. did those two identities coincide? Um, yeah, and so I think I think Flannery's ability to capture that has definitely been one of her greatest gifts in my mind. Yeah, and that she refused to do that smoothening down, and that and that ties in with what we were saying about her craft. But I feel like, yeah, speaks to her recognition of her faith as like the bedrock of what she's doing which is to be mm-hmm. truthful and i think that's yeah. something that we we um forget she has one of her essays where 
yeah they're not actually asking about christian writers but they're saying like what where's the where is the american writer who writes about the joy of american life (laughs) we have so we have so much prosperity and wealth why aren't we why don't we have more writers who write about like the the joy of that if only it were so simple (laughs) to write propaganda yeah (laughs) she says the writer whose position is christian and probably the writer whose position is not will begin to wonder at that point if there could not be some ugly correlation between our unparalleled prosperity and the stridency of these demands for a literature that shows us the joy of life, <laughs> he may be he may be permitted to ask if these screams for joy would be quite so piercing if joy were really more abundant in our <laughs> prosperous society. <laughs> screams. <laughs> uh, but she goes she goes on to say the novelist with christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him and his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural mm. he may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across to his this hostile audience when you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs as you do, you can relax a little and use more normal means of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. Which I think is a very famous quote of hers, but to go on to your point about propaganda, I also love uh, what she says next, which is, Unless we are willing to accept our artists as they are, the answer to the question, who speaks for America today, will have to be the advertising agency. (laughs) They are... They are entirely capable of showing us our unparalleled prosperity and our almost classless society, and no one has ever accused them of not being affirmative. <laughs> where, the, where the artist is still trusted, he will not be looked to for reassurance. Those who believe that art proceeds from a healthy and not a diseased faculty of the mind will take what he shows them as a revelation, not of what we ought to be, but what we are at a given time under given circumstances. That is, as a limited revelation, be revelation nevertheless. Mm, those were great. Thank you for sharing those. I, I want to make sure that I leave us some time to talk about the third item, but I just want to share briefly that slightly going off topic into the modern day here, That's so prescient um, just to understand how um, like the advertisers function in America, which still feels very relevant today. But then also what a contrast if we consider Flannery's work to be bold and brave by including things that aren't necessarily so savory or more complicated and gray, but because of that are actually inclusive of the people on the fringes of society. Mm. Um, to contrast that against um, the style of artwork, which I think a lot of political action has called for saying, and I'm not trying to lampoon all of this, I'm just trying to to talk about the downsides of some of it, to say, um, well, if I care about equality and representation, then that is just a simple one-for-one in my media. Um, there's not necessarily any deeper thinking about how to actually achieve that, how to actually instill mm-hmm. that into the hearts of the audience. Rather, it's just saying, yeah, I want this, so put it there. And then there's, mm-hmm. you know, news articles will praise uh, a, a Super Bowl advertisement that includes the first ever example of X identity. And I'm not, I'm not speaking just to the LGBTQ items. I'm speaking very broadly here. But 
what does that accomplish if we're getting an idealized form of this in advertisement, which already feels to be like it's undercutting its message, rather than getting art that is, in a sense, more real and honest about the pains and sufferings of those groups than the, than the real thing. I, I guess for me, like a just to bring a contemporary reference out, the, the film The Farewell does such an amazing job of showing the sort of confusion of the Chinese-American identity and all of the, the both good and bad elements that come with Chinese culture and the way they approach death, that that nuanced and complexity and, and in a sense, um, opportunity to disagree with the Chinese approach to things, for me, was like such a, an amazing introduction to understanding that experience more. Um, and I guess for me, I would pick that any day over say just having like idealized Chinese family in an advertisement you know like yeah um, 100% I love that film as well yeah I yeah. thought it was really great but yeah as you said maybe to to move to our last section just because in some ways it's the it's the, it's the avenue in which I find her easiest to love which is the seriousness of her humor which is that she she's just very funny and she should be read funny in fact she says <laughs> She in in one of her letters she says I'm glad you like the stories these are her stories she says because now because now I feel it's not bad that I like them so much the truth is that I like them better than anyone and I read them over and over and laugh and laugh and then get embarrassed when I remember I was the one who wrote them <laughs> ooh <that's> so spicy <laughs> she she is yeah. humorous and she is funny in what she writes and I think she's funny in who she is but I think it even goes to what you were saying about bringing in the fringes and bringing in the unusual because she writes about freaks and you know that's that's a kind of contentious word these days but she was you know we often talk about her use of the idea of like literary freaks as and they are used prophetically and shockingly and to disarm you and to disturb you in the stories but they are also, in a lot of ways, figures of humour. And I don't mean this, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot uh, in terms of how I view kind of people watching and all of those things, which is, you know, when is it mean to laugh at the world? And I think what she's trying to convey in a lot of her humour is that you can only have a sense of what is the freak when you have a sense of what is the whole. And I think you can only have a sense of what is incongruous when when you have a sense of what is normal. Um, and normal, when I mean that, I mean that from a like a Christ point of view, that like what is, you know, what is uh, not at odds with, with ourselves. And so there's a lot of humor to be had in that. And that, that kind of humor can actually bring us together and to show us that we are all odd and freaks and misfits and all of these things that there is a humor in our own grotesqueness that is actually something that unites us and I think she would really feel that in a lot of ways that she kind of likes that sense of not conforming or not being part of that that like as you said the sort of advertisement picture perfect presentation of the world yeah but if you're right though that she keeps an element of humor in it too though um mm. that <laughs> when at least in wise blood if i can if i can bring that up that's the only mm. novel of hers i've read of her too but one of the freaks is someone who dresses up in a a gorilla costume and <laughs> wants to run around 
It's like their, their, their sole mission in life is to co-opt this costume and inhabit it. And that's so funny, but it's not it's not telegraphed on, on the page. You just know it's funny because it is. Yeah. I, I feel like that maybe is one unifying trend, if there's any, between... We, we mentioned the sort of tripartite identity of the confidence mm-hmm. of her in the public world, the sort of obscure strangeness and off-putting tone of her in her fiction, and then the very humble and self-effacing nature of herself in her journal all of them contain humor though all of them contain cleverness and wit and that's definitely something that is a through line in her work yeah i think and i love which was kind of a revelation in preparing for this episode where i kind of realized the other thing that she says about the humor in her writing which is that she finds the devil uh, quite a humorous figure <laughs> and that that sounds quite blasphemous or sort of flippant when you first hear it but what she's saying is is that like in, as she explores in a lot of her writing you know god often uses the devil and the in terms of like the brokenness of uh of the world and the fallings and failures of the things around us and subverts it and turns something good out of it you know and like the crucifixion is the ultimate example like the devil thought he had won and then you know god got to say gotcha no you didn't (laughs) that like that and so she says in general the devil can always be a subject for my kind of comedy one way or another i suppose this is because he is always accomplishing ends other than his own And I think that's an amazing way to look at the darkness in her stories, which is that sense of like, yes, there is all this darkness, but look at how it's it can be subverted in many ways and can be it can be put to God's end. And that, you know, while we are responsible for trying to give God the best offering, you know, Abel's offering, uh, at the same time, God can use all kinds of crooked instruments to write with and that he has the power to transform what should be bad into something that's good and that that power lies with him and not with us but that he does have that power and so on some level we can laugh at the devil and so and and in that way i think she she has that ability to combine the humor with the darkness but she's just uh, like my favorite thing is just in her letters she's so funny i have one quote here which i think you enjoyed where she's talking about (laughs) being interviewed and she said at emory they had a list of questions for me to answer and the first one is do you write from imagination or experience my inclination at such point is always to get deathly stupid and just say i just write Oh my gosh. <laughs> she and she says I don't get any credit for turning the other cheek as my tongue is always in it. <laughs> um she's so funny. Like I just love she talks about this one where she meets a bunch of very disgruntled people from a new university uh, who have a new library mm. and she says that the library specialized in the second volume of trilogies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh no! <laughs> she, I, th- I think that humor is what really endears me to her. Like every time I read about her, I just, I just burst out laughing. Yeah. She's so thank goodness, witty though. and funny and self-effacing. I think that there definitely is a need for that too. Um, in a, in at least a, a, a world or a, an environment where I think humor is often looked at suspiciously, because in some sense they're trying to figure out like, well, are you secretly kind of like coding something in there or what's really the the sort of virtue or mindset you have behind all this? I find hers to be more so just 
straight up funny oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's honest, uh, something that we could do with uh, appreciating it, I think, a little bit more. In, in her journal, I think you already captured probably the best one, the one about being a cheese. <laughs> um, <laughs> but were, did you have any plans on sharing the, the last quote from it, or can I share that? Go ahead. Okay, so I think something that also speaks to me in the journal is that Again, it's just it's just selected random dates or not random, but it's just she only writes a few dates every like few months or even within like a year's time. There's a gap. And so the day that she talked about being a cheese, she had asked for, again, the desire to to know God and to love God and to be have all that immediately. Um, she ends that by saying, if only I could hold out God in my mind, if only I could always just think of him. And then the very next day, there's an entry, which is the last entry in the journal, which says, my thoughts are so far away from God. (laughs) 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 He might as well not have made me. And the feeling I egg up writing here lasts approximately a half hour and seems a sham. I don't want any of this artificial, superficial feeling stimulated by the choir. Today, I have proved myself a glutton for scotch oatmeal cookies and erotic thought. (laughs) There, there is nothing left to say of me. <laughs> and that's the I, end. There's nothing the left end. to say of me. <laughs> <laughs> and she, I think she so mentions dramatic. a few times the gluttony of her stomach. And so yeah. she, she seems to be aware of a sinful desire for cookies and sweets. But <laughs> <laughs> or at least, you know, not sinful, but not ideal. But yeah, I love it. Yeah, and just someone who can turn a phrase like that. Yeah, she's just wonderful. And so I think maybe this is to to conclude. I I wanted to just say a little thing, which is that I don't think the point of this is to sort of explain away her fiction Mm, by saying, oh, well, once we understand her, then we don't need to read what she wrote. Or once we understand her, she talks a lot about that, like literature is not an algebraic equation to solve or like theme is a thread that you pull out and then you have the answer to the whole thing. And, and that she's also inherently unknowable. Like, I think one of my favorite things about her is that she sort of deliberately confounds people and that she is a mystery. She's so interested in mystery. But it, it comes across, as we were saying in humor, like in one of these very flippant things she says, she was talking about shirts and she said, the only embossed one I ever had had a fierce looking bulldog over it with the word Georgia over him. <laughs> I wore it I wore it all the time, it being my policy at that point in life to create an unfavorable impression. <laughs> <laughs> my my urge for such has to be repressed as my mother does not approve of making a spectacle <laughs> of oneself when over thirty. But I th- I, to come back to the, the interview with Ethan and Maya Hawk, I actually thought one of the most perceptive things that was said was by Maya, where she said, mm. talking about Flannery and saying that, do I want to behave so people know who I am when they look at me from the outside? Do I need everyone to understand me right away? Or do I want to be perfectly good on the inside and not care what anyone, anybody mm-hmm. thinks of me? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of what Flannery does, which is to cultivate the discipline internally and then to use that as fuel to write and then to say, you're going to misunderstand me when I write, but that's up to you to try and delve deeper. And I think that and I think that she earns that deepness, like she talks about mystery all the time. And she says that the type of mind that can understand good fiction is not necessarily the educated mind. It is at all times the kind of mind that is willing to have its sense of mystery deepened by contact with reality and its sense of reality deepened by contact with mystery. Fiction should be both canny and uncanny. And I just think that 
she is she is a mystery and her writing is a mystery as it should be and mm. she's just so worth taking the time to ponder over and to 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 dwell with her words well said rachel and that is a real temptation i think for or was for me at least where i was rebuffed by a good man is hard to find encountered her essays and thought oh i can handle this this is great and then mm-hmm. didn't necessarily um think to go back to the to the the fiction, because I figured, yeah, I'm still going to have to wrestle with it. It's not very evident, even though I understand the motivation. But that's honestly been my favorite part now. It's been such a fruitful exercise to do so with friends and other thinkers, or even alone at first, but to encounter these stories and and give them that second chance of saying, hmm, what's the meaning that's slightly beneath the surface here? Um, I think you're totally right to say that. Please, please don't take from this podcast that um, <laughs> these these essays and these journals sort of like undercut or explain away her fiction. Instead, take it as an invitation to get to know her better um, and understand the stories better as a result of that. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining me, Shane. I think we just have our one question left, which is what have you been enjoying at the moment? Yeah. So be completely honest. Do you want to hear the three things I've been listening to or should I just do one? <laughs> sure. No, go for it. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the first one that I wanted to recommend, which has been a lifelong one for me, um, or a very long one for me is this band Typhoon. And I will share them just because they're probably the most contemporary example. I think that shares something in common with Flannery was mm. someone who desired to do great things, but had their life sidelined due to childhood illness and then almost mm-hmm. all of their writing thenceforth has, or Kyle Morton's writing thenceforth has been about uh, coming to terms with that and trying to understand how God fits into this sort of new version of his life that he didn't quite ask for. Um, but in a similar way, it's led to him being incredibly fruitful and loved. Uh, the other two are, I wanted to share that, listening to the 1975 a lot more from <laughs> Matthias Conway's mm-hmm. reference. Uh, their newest album has been really fascinating and I think he's someone who's also pretty Christ-haunted, but has definitely got both good and bad elements. And uh, last is John Lucas, who's someone that was recommended by a friend here in Sycamore named Alex Opfer. Um, that's just someone who I never thought I'd enjoy from, I guess, a more overtly Christian genre. If you get any trends from my interest, they're always Christ-haunted people. <laughs> and so <laughs> this is someone who's actually like okay about being Christian, which is something I've not really explored before as much in, in music. Um, but it's been really fruitful. And John Lucas is, I think, one of the better ones out there. So highly recommend. That's great. I'm a big fan of the first two, so I'll have to check out the, the third. Uh, and for myself, I am getting ready to come visit Shane, along with Robin and Ben in Chicago very soon. And so in preparation, I've taken his advice and started watching The Bear. I've got the first season down and I'm coming on to the second one and I am really, really enjoying it. So, uh, yeah, I will recommend that. And oh, hopefully so soon, soon I'll also be recommending Chicago itself. <laughs> <laughs> if I have anything um, to say about it, you will. <laughs> so i think that's it other than that just follow us on instagram at risking enchantment podcast you can find me on twitter at seeking watson shane is there anything that you want to shout out i don't have many socials i'm a man of mystery but um (laughs) (laughs) i think that my my wix site is still up with some of my past projects if uh, anyone's curious that's called in praise of follies 
So you're welcome to check stuff there. I might be posting some stuff in the future, but yeah. Perfect. And our website here is rachelsherlock.com. And to find the podcast, you can go to the forward slash podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back soon with another episode. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless. Thank you.